Good evening, everyone. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians this evening and read about Jesus Christ, our Lord. So I'll begin now with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the many examples that you have given to us in scripture, both good examples and bad examples that tell us how we are to live as Christians. We ask that you would help us to understand these lessons and take them to heart and apply them in our lives and to look to you for the strength to obey. We ask this evening that you would be with us and help us to understand this book that we are looking at and especially to understand the many ramifications of the promise that you have given us of resurrection. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's begin our study of first we'll look at the flight characteristics. The, first of all, the facts. The Apostle Paul authored the book of 1 Corinthians. You're told that in the first two verses. Paul was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin and a Pharisee who persecuted the early church before he converted to Christianity. Apparently, uh, of the many epistles of Paul, the book of 1 Corinthians is one that uh, there isn't much argument about who wrote 1 Corinthians. There is dispute about some of the other books that epistles that Paul wrote, but there's not much dispute about 1 Corinthians. It's generally agreed that Paul did write it. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians from the city of Ephesus during his third missionary journey. He ministered in the city, in the city of Corinth, for more than two years. And he most likely composed the letter around 55 through 56 AD. The landmarks, much of what Paul covered in 1 Corinthians regarded Jesus' role as head of the church, the result of what Jesus did on the cross. So much of what the Corinthian church was doing defied the headship of Christ, choosing worldly wisdom and ways over godly gratitude and grace. Where Jesus championed unity among his people, they broke off into factions, looking to lift themselves above other believers instead of following Jesus' example, and lowering themselves to serve everyone. They were Satan, but selfish. The results of operating in their own strength revealed themselves in sin and sexual impurity and lack of doctrinal clarity, particularly about Jesus' resurrection. And we'll talk a great deal about that in chapter 15, which has become famous as the resurrection chapter. The resurrection is what sets Christianity apart from other religions. And it sets Jesus apart from other religious leaders. Paul explored its importance in depth and the kind of love it enables and promotes. On his second missionary journey, Paul came to Corinth 
a city known for its depravity. And he stayed there for a year and a half, working as a tent maker during the week and preaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, some scholars um, question whether that should be translated as tent maker. Some say that he was a saddle maker rather than a tent maker, but that's not particularly significant. But anyway, he, he worked during the week and he preached in the synagogue on the Sabbath. While he was there, God told him, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in the city. So Paul ministered boldly to a church torn by divisions, sexual immorality, divorce, and a host of doctrinal issues. It's understandable that Paul was compelled to write so strongly to a church that had all but completely fallen into the dissolution that city encouraged. Through God's grace, Paul would later be able to rejoice over the church's repentance and acceptance of his God-given authority. And we'll read about that in 2 Corinthians. First, though, he addressed in this letter a series of practical problems in the Corinthian church. The itinerary, we'll look at the outline of the book. In chapters 1 through 11, we see the manifestation of carnalities in the church. And we see the many problems that the Corinthian church had. Division in the church in chapters 1 through 4. Disorder in the church, chapters 5 and 6. Difficulties in the church, chapters 7 through 11. And then in the latter part of the book, we read about the spiritualities in the church. Chapters 12 through 16. The manifestation of gifts in chapters 12 through 14. The definition of the gospel in 15. That's all about the, the resurrection. The result of the gospel. And then in chapter 16, we have instructions about giving. So that's the itinerary, the outline of the book. The gospel. Most noteworthy in 1 Corinthians is the clear presentation of the gospel in its basic form in chapter 15. When reduced to its essence, the gospel is an event in history at a certain time, in a certain place, by a certain person. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again. Some of these verses may have been used by ancient believers at that time, at the time of their baptism, as a sort of confession of faith. In abbreviated form, Paul focused on the need for Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, giving us the very heart of the gospel, the gospel itself. The power of resurrected life in Christ fuels every objective we can have as believers, enabling us to love the way God loves us with both righteousness and compassion for everyone we meet. Jesus died to make you right with God, and his resurrection makes it possible for you to love like God loves. Paul made it clear that such love must shine through in everything, from marriage to taking communion to giving support of God's work 
to loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. A history behind the book of 1 Corinthians. The city of Corinth was a commercial crossroads for the Roman Empire. It became a melting pot of devotees to various pagan cults that was filled with a whole slew of nationalities and thousands of slaves. It was marked by a cultural and moral depravity, neither surprising nor unusual in such a large seaport. Seaports tend to be notorious as a, a place where various immoralities together. Corinth was no exception. Greek playwrights coined the phrase, Corinthia zestai, to act like a Corinthian, which describes a character who is either a drunk, a prostitute, a pimp, or some combination of the three. Spread throughout the city, pagan temples encouraged widespread licentiousness. At one time, the temple of Aphrodite was reported to have 1,000 temple prostitutes, and those cultural corruptions seeped into the church at Corinth. The name Corinth means ornament, which was more an indication of its commercial value than its physical beauty. Corinth, located on the isthmus connecting the Peloponnesian Peninsula to, the, to mainland Greece, was a natural center of trade and point of exposure to religions and ideas from around the world. A couple of centuries before Paul's time in 146 BC, Corinth was destroyed by the Roman general Lucius Mummius. How would you like to have that name, Lucius Mummius? In 44 BC, Julius Caesar rebuilt the city and quickly reestablished its importance as a trade center for the empire. Paul helped establish the Church of Corinth during his second missionary trip, sometime around AD 50. Corinth was also a place of athletic contests. It was second only to Olympia. You probably recognize that name. We have that carried over to today as the Olympics. But Corinth was second only to Olympia as a place of athletic contest. And you see that in the book of 1 Corinthians. There's an athletic metaphor in chapter 9. And that's because of Corinth was a place that was known for athletic contest. Here is a, a map of Corinth. Down in the lower right hand corner, you see an inset showing the where this map of Corinth is located. So off to the left there, you see the, the boot of Italy and off to the right, the, you see uh, Turkey. And then Greece is in the middle. And Corinth was just at the uh, place where the, the, the Peloponnesian uh, Peninsula connects to the mainland Greece. So, so where the red pin is there, that's where Corinth is. That's where Corinth was located. So you can see it was a, a good harbor for ships and therefore it was a, 
an important recruiting center. So the, the isthmus connected the what was known as Achaea at that time to the Greek mainland. There's a view of uh, Corinth as it is today, and you can see the harbor there and the, is, the isthmus off to the right. And when the ships would come into the harbor, people would stand on the shore and sing, we wish you a merry isthmus, we wish you a merry isthmus. No, no, not really. Just, just seeing if you're paying attention. The travel tips from the book of 1 Corinthians, the things that we can learn and apply in our lives. First of all, unity should be our goal as Christians. We might not agree on the non-essential issues of doctrine, like uh, what style of worship to use during services, but we should be like-minded when it comes to the core teachings of scripture, especially regarding Jesus. God uses common men and women to spread an uncommon message the good news of Jesus Christ. That end goal should never fail to bring us together. What's worse, doing wrong or being wrong? When someone wrongs you, is your first impulse to forgive and let go? Probably not. That's not natural. But as an act of your will and in compliance and obedience to Jesus, it is supernaturally possible. Restoration of relationship should always be your goal because it's God's goal. The church should not mirror the world. Paul reminded us that we're no longer to live in sin, but instead live differently from the world around us. On one hand, we as the church need to take God's command seriously, not allowing sin to flourish in our midst. On the other hand, we also need to embrace God's grace alongside his truth, love those who have fallen into sin, and do what we can to restore them to a right relationship with God and his church. Being mindful that God loved us and bought us for himself while we were still sinners. Navigate life's gray areas biblically. As Paul said, all things are lawful for me but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Consider two limitations, utility and charity. First is what you're considering going to help you achieve your ultimate goal of representing Christ, becoming more like him, sharing about him. Second, if you do it, will others be hurt? Don't put your freedom ahead of someone else's walk. sanctification in Christ. There were many problems in the Corinthian church, and Paul was telling the, the believers there how to behave as Christians. If we are Christians, we should behave as Christians. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ. The key verse, First Corinthians, Chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, but they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
but we are believers, we are Christians, we do have the Spirit of God. So we can understand how we are to live, how we are to behave as Christians. Characteristics of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians shows the social implication of the spiritual gospel. We have the gospel, so now how do we, how do we act on it? How do we behave? It contains 13 references to the cross, six direct references and seven allusions. There is a strong emphasis on the Lordship of Christ. And that's understandable that there would be this emphasis on the Lordship. Christ is our Lord and Savior. And the, the Corinthians church had to be reminded of that. Paul stressed that problems were solved by spiritual principles, not psychological expedients. It was a church full of charismatic gifts, including tongues and prophecies, the misuse of which covered in three chapters, chapters 12 and 14. The church was not free from Greek pride. That's why Paul had distressed that not many wise men now are called, because there were those in Corinth who, like the Greeks in general, considered themselves wise. And it was characterized by immaturity, immorality, and disunity. There's a great emphasis in the book of 1 Corinthians on Christ's relationship to the church. Christ is the head of the church, but in Corinth, this relationship was dishonored in numerous ways. Worldly wisdom despises it. Factions dishonor it. Impurity destroys it. Idols defile it. And disorder disgraces it. And finally, heresy denies it. On the other hand, marriage depicts it, this relationship between Christ and the church, communion declares it, and charity or love demonstrates it. Apologetic value of First Corinthians. The book is, is of great apologetic value for many reasons. It is an early book written only uh, 22 years after the death of Christ. The authorship by an apostle and eyewitness of the resurrection is virtually unquestioned, even by the critics. I mentioned before that even, even uh, the critics admit that, that Paul did write this epistle. Paul refers to some 500 witnesses of the resurrection most of whom were still alive, challenging the readers to check it out for themselves. Among the eyewitnesses were two unbelievers before the resurrection, James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, an ardent opponent of Christianity. Few events from antiquity survive in one book with this kind of eyewitness contemporary testimony. The foundation of the church. Let's look at some of the uh, alleged discrepancies or contradictions uh, either in the book of 1 Corinthians or between 1 Corinthians and other books of the New Testament. The first is 1 Corinthians 3.11. And we compare that with Ephesians 
Who is the foundation of the church? Christ or the apostles? In this text in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. On the other hand, Paul told the Ephesians that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. Which is it? The answer is in the very next phrase of Ephesians 2.20. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Christ is the foundation in a primary sense, and his chosen, his chosen apostles are the foundation in a secondary sense. Christ is, as it were, the substructure, and the apostles are the foundation built on the substructure. Christ is the kingpin that holds the apostolic foundation of the church together. It was his deeds, his death and resurrection, and their doctrine about him that formed the foundation of the Christian church. of homosexuality. Was Paul's condemnation of homosexuality merely his private opinion? Paul told the Corinthians, either fornicators or homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. But in the same book on another issue, he admitted that he was only giving his private opinion. Paul said, I have no commandment from the Lord, and I say this, not the Lord, was not this also merely Paul's own non-binding opinion on the issue? Paul's clearest condemnation of homosexuality is in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, the divine authority of which is not challenged by anyone who accepts the inspiration of Scripture. Paul's apostolic credentials are firmly established in Scripture. He declared in Galatians that his revelations were not something that man made up, but were received through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul declared to the Corinthians that the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles, were done among you. In short, he had exercised apostolic authority in his ministry to the Corinthian Christians. Even here in the book of 1 Corinthians, where Paul's authority is severely challenged by his critics. His divine authority is made evident in three ways. He begins the book by claiming that he has words taught by the Spirit. He concludes the book claiming, what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. Even in the disputed chapter 7, where Paul is alleged to be giving his own uninspired opinion, he declares, I too have the Spirit of God. Indeed, when he said, I, not the Lord, he does not mean his words are not from the Lord. This would contradict everything else that he says. Rather, it means that Jesus did not speak directly to this matter while on earth. But Jesus promised his apostles, that he would send the Holy Spirit to guide you into all truth. And Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians was a fulfillment of that promise. What about running to obtain a goal? In 1 Corinthians 9.24 versus Romans 9.16, does Paul encourage or discourage running to obtain a spiritual goal? In this text, in 1 Corinthians, Paul encourages the believer to run in such a way 
that you may obtain it. However, in Romans 9.16, Paul informs us that not of him who wills, nor of him who wills. So in one place, in 1 Corinthians, we are told to run to obtain it. And in Romans, it seems to be saying that is of no value. The first passage is speaking about rewards, which do depend on our works. Well, the passage in Romans is speaking about salvation, which is by grace and not by works. So that explains the difference between the value of running in one case, rewards, versus the, the our efforts being of no value in salvation. So that is the explanation of that. Did Jesus appear only to believers? Did Jesus appear only to unbelievers? Well, th this is an issue that comes up in 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 8. Some critics have attempted to cast doubt on the validity of Christ's resurrection by insisting that he appeared only to believers, but never to unbelievers. Is this so? In other words, he's, he only appeared to those who believed in him. So how can we trust what they have to say? It is incorrect to claim that Jesus did not appear to unbelievers. This is clear for several reasons. He appeared to the most hostile unbeliever of all, Saul of Tarsus. The Bible devotes much of several chapters to relate this story. In Acts in chapters 9, 22, 26. Jesus appeared to some who were not his disciples at all. He appeared to his brother James, who with his other brothers was not a believer before the resurrection. Even Jesus' disciples were unbelievers in the resurrection when he first appeared to them. When Mary met and others reported that Jesus was resurrected, their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. Later, Jesus had to chide the two disciples on the road to Emmaus about disbelief in his resurrection. O oh, foolish ones, it's slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Even after Jesus had appeared to the women, to Peter, the two disciples and to the ten apostles, still Thomas said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He was hardly a believer in the resurrection. So it is simply false to claim that Jesus did not appear to unbelievers. Did Jesus only appear to a few? Why did Jesus appear only to a select few? That the fact only a few saw Jesus after his resurrection indicates that he was essentially invisible to the human eye and only materialized to a few people on select occasions. But this is contrary to the orthodox contention that Jesus' resurrection was literal and physical. Jesus did not appear to only a few people. He appeared to more than 500 people 
including many women, his own apostles, his brother James, and his Saul of Tarsus, the chief anti-Christian of the day. Jesus did not simply appear on a few occasions. He appeared on at least 12 different occasions that we are told of in the Gospels. He may have appeared more times, but those are the 12 that, that we are told about in the Gospels. And these were spread over a 40-day period of time and in many different geographical locations. Jesus did not allow just anyone to lay hands on him even before his resurrection. On one occasion, an unbelieving crowd tried to take Jesus and throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Even before his resurrection, Jesus was selective about those for whom he had performed miracles. He refused to perform miracles in his own home area because of their unbelief. Jesus even disappointed Herod, who had hoped to see him perform a miracle. The truth is that Jesus refused to cast pearls before swine. In submission to the Father's will, he was sovereign over his activity both before and after his resurrection. But in no way does this prove that he was essentially invisible and immaterial, either before or after his resurrection. Was Jesus the first one ever to be resurrected from the dead? In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, we are told that Jesus was the first fruits from those who have fallen asleep. So the Bible seems to claim here that Jesus Christ was the first one ever to rise from the dead. However, there are many other resurrections recorded in the Bible before Jesus' resurrection. Both in the Old Testament, we read about the activities of Elijah and Elisha. In the New Testament, we read about Lazarus and we read about the uh, widow's son at Nain. How then be the first one? When Jesus returned from the dead, it was the first real resurrection. Every other raising from the dead was merely a resuscitation or a revivification of a dead body. There are some crucial differences between a true resurrection and a mere resuscitation. A resurrection is to an immortal body, whereas a resuscitation is merely a mortal body coming back to life. Before Christ, Lazarus and everyone else who was raised from the dead died again eventually. When Christ was raised, it was declared that he was alive forevermore. Further, resurrection bodies manifest some supernatural qualities, not inherent in mortal bodies, such as the ability to appear and disappear from sight immediately, or to get inside a closed room. Finally, while a resurrection is more than uh, resuscitation, it was not less than one. Resuscitated corpses die again, but Jesus' resurrection body was immortal. He conquered death, whereas bodies that are really resuscitated will eventually be conquered by death. However, the fact that Jesus was the first to be raised 
in an immortal body does not mean it was an immaterial body. It was more than a reanimation of a material corpse, but it was not less than that. It was his same body of flesh and bones. There are several issues that are raised by this, the considerations in 1 Corinthians 15. And I think that by um, looking at these different issues from different vantage points, it will help us to understand them better. There is a great deal of overlap between these different issues, but I think that will only add to our understanding. So, is the resurrection body the same person or a different one? Is Paul teaching that the resurrection body is a different one from the one that is sown? kind of reincarnation. So it, it can seem from these verses that the resurrection body is one body is substituted for another body. In other words, the old body dies and you get a new body that, that's totally different from the old. Well, that's not really the case. According to verse 37, we do not sow that body that shall be. So it seems to say, it seems to sound like we are getting a totally a new body that's unrelated to our old body. Some take this to mean that the resurrection body is a different one, a spiritual body that is not essentially material. Does this prove that we are not raised in the same physical body of flesh and bones in which we die? There are real changes in the resurrection body, but it is not changed into a non-physical body one substantially different from the one we possess now. The seed that, that goes into the ground brings forth more seeds that are the same kind, not immaterial seeds. It is in this sense that Paul can say, do not sow, in other words, cause to die, that body that shall be, since it is immortal and cannot die. The body that is raised is different in that it is immortal not in that it is immaterial. Of his resurrection body, Jesus said, it is I myself, handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. There are many reasons for holding that the resurrection body, though transformed and glorified, is numerically the same. There's a one-for-one -one correspondence between the body that died and the one that is raised immortal. It's numerically the same body of flesh and bones Jesus possessed before his resurrection. And since our resurrection bodies will be like his, when he comes we will be like him or we will see him. The same is true of the believer's resurrection body. Notice these characteristics of Jesus' resurrection body. It was the same body with the crucifixion scars it had from before the, the resurrection. It was the same body that left the empty tomb behind. The physical body of Jesus did not corrupt in the tomb. Jesus said the same body that is destroyed will be built up again. 
the immortal body is put on over, but it does not replace the mortal body. So the, the, the resurrection body, the glorified body, is put on over the essential spiritual you, but it's not like you, you get rid of one, um, one mortal body and put on a different mortal body. That's not what happens. The plant that springs forth from the seed is both genetically and physically connected with the seed. What is sown is what is reaped. So it's not a, a, a totally new, different thing. It is the same body of flesh and bones, that's the way the Gospel of Luke described it, that could be touched and could eat physical food. The change Paul referred to at the resurrection is a change in the body, not a change of the body. The changes in the resurrection are changes in secondary qualities, not changes in primary qualities. It is changed from a corruptible physical body, physical body. It is not changed from a physical body into a non-physical body. It is changed from a mortal to an immortal physical body but it is not changed from a material to an immaterial body. And that's what we, we look at next with this question of whether it's material or immaterial. Is the resurrection body material or immaterial? Paul declares that the resurrection body is a spiritual body, but a spiritual body, it seems, is an immaterial body. However, elsewhere, the Bible says Jesus' resurrection was made of flesh and bones. So what, what are we to make of this thing about the spiritual body? The resurrection body is a spiritual A spiritual body denotes an immortal body, not an immaterial body. So that's what the, the term the spiritual body is emphasizing, that the body is immortal. It's not talking about the, the substance of which the body is made. A spiritual body is one, one dominated by the spirit, not one devoid of matter. The Greek word pneumatikos, translated spiritual here, means a body directed by the spirit, as opposed to one under the dominion of the flesh. It is not ruled by flesh that perishes, but by the spirit that endures. So spiritual body does not mean immaterial and invisible, but immortal and imperishable. This is clear from several facts. First of all, let's look at the parallelism mentioned by Paul in this chapter. And comparing the pre-resurrection body to the post-resurrection body, the pre-resurrection body is earthly, the post-resurrection body is heavenly. The pre-resurrection body is perishable, Post-resurrection body is imperishable. The pre-resurrection body is weak, of course, whereas the post-resurrection body is powerful. And here's where we zero, zero in now on this. The pre-resurrection body is natural, 
And when it describes the post-resurrection body as spiritual, it means supernatural. Natural as opposed to supernatural. And finally, the pre-resurrection body is mortal and the post-resurrection body is immortal. The complete text indicates that spiritual pneumaticos uh, could be translated supernatural in contrast to natural. This is made clear by the parallels of perishable and imperishable, corruptible and incorruptible. In fact, this same Greek word is translated supernatural in 1 Corinthians 10.4 in the RSV, when it speaks of the supernatural rock which followed them in the wilderness. So that um, verse in the RSV makes it clear that what is meant by spiritual is supernatural. Second word spiritual in 1 Corinthians refers to material objects. Paul spoke of the spiritual rock that followed Israel in the wilderness from which they got spiritual drink. But the Old Testament story reveals that it was a physical rock from which they got literal water to drink. The actual water they drank from that material rock was produced supernaturally. It was a spiritual rock and a spiritual drink in the sense that it was supernatural. When Jesus supernaturally made bread for the 5,000, he made literal bread. He didn't make spiritual bread. However, this literal material bread could have been called spiritual bread because of its supernatural source. In the same way that the literal manna given to Israel is called spiritual food. Further, when Paul spoke about a spiritual man, obviously he did not mean an invisible immaterial man with no corporeal body. He was speaking of a flesh and blood human being whose life was lived by the supernatural power of God. He was referring to a literal person whose life was spirit-directed. A spiritual man is one who is taught by the Spirit and who receives the things that come from the Spirit of God. The resurrection body can be called a spiritual body in much the same way we speak of the Bible as a spiritual book. Regardless of their spiritual source and power, both the resurrection body and the Bible are material objects. Another question that comes up is, can flesh and blood enter the kingdom? Verse Corinthians 15.15, if flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God, how can there be a physical resurrection? The Bible speaks of the resurrection of the physical body from the grave, which is composed of flesh and bones, and which leaves an empty tomb behind. However, according to this verse, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So how do we reconcile those two ideas? To conclude from this phrase, that the resurrection body will not be a body of physical flesh is without biblical justification. First of all, the very next phrase omitted from the above quotation of verse 15 clearly indicates that Paul is not speaking of flesh as such, but of corruptible flesh. So he's not speaking of, of all flesh, both, both the uh, corruptible and incorruptible. He's, he's speaking of a particular kind of flesh, 
corruptible flesh, for he has, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. So Paul is not affirming that the resurrection body will not have flesh. He is saying it will not have perishable flesh. To convince the frightened disciples that he was not an immaterial spirit, Jesus emphatically told them, this was right after the resurrection, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Peter declared that the resurrection body would be the same body of flesh that went into the tomb and never saw corruption. This is on the, in the sermon that Peter gave on the day of Pentecost. Paul also reaffirmed this truth in a parallel passage in Acts 13. And John implies that it is against Christ to deny that he remains in the flesh, even after his resurrection. This conclusion cannot be avoided by claiming that Jesus' resurrection body had flesh bones, not flesh and blood. For if it had flesh and bones, then it was a literal material body, whether or not it had blood. Flesh and bones stresses the, the solidity of Jesus' physical post-resurrection body. They are more obvious signs of tangibility than blood, which cannot as easily be seen or touched. So that's why he emphasized flesh and bones rather than flesh and blood, because you can't really see blood unless you cut the person open. The phrase flesh and blood in this context apparently means mortal flesh and blood. That is a mere human being. This is supported by parallel uses in the New Testament. When Jesus said to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. He could not have been referring to the mere substance of flesh and blood of the body as such, which obviously could not reveal that he was the son of God. So just these substances of flesh and blood couldn't reveal that. He was speaking of flesh and blood as a representation of the entire human being. The most natural interpretation of 1 Corinthians 15, 15 seems to be that humans, as they now are, earthbound and perishable creatures, cannot have a place in God's glorious heavenly kingdom. And that concludes our study of 1 Corinthians. And I'll close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the assurance that you have given us that as believers in you, we will have immortal bodies, we will be resurrected from the dead, and we will live for all eternity with you in those glorious, wonderful bodies that you will provide for us. And we look forward to that time, especially as we see in ourselves and in those around us, we see that physical bodies are subject to decay and deterioration and death we look forward to that glorious time when all believers will be resurrected and given 
glorified bodies and live for all eternity with you in your loving care. For that we give thanks to you. We ask that you will help us to be renewed in our zeal to share this glorious truth with those around us that they may be spared from the corruption and death and decay that plagues mankind and has plagued mankind for centuries. We look forward to that glorious day when we will be freed from all corruption and decay that is in the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.